when he had a big problem, Sherlock described it as a three-pipe problem. And he said, it's quite a three-pipe problem, and I beg that you won't speak to me for 50 minutes. The man knows his boundaries. Right? Exactly. (laughs) Episode 11, Sherlock is Autistic. Welcome to the Autistic Culture Podcast. Each episode, we dive deep into autistic contributions to society and culture by introducing you to some of the world's most famous and successful autistics in history. Before we get started, a quick disclaimer on how we use the word autistic. The purpose of this show is not to diagnose the people or characters we discuss as autistic. While some may have announced being autistic, what we're really sharing here is our observation of what is representative of autistic culture. It can sometimes be difficult for autistic people to celebrate our natural tendencies and traits due to the perception of autism as a disorder that needs to be fixed, a long history of damaging medical interventions to get autistics to fit in with mainstream culture, and protective masking skills many of us have developed to try to stay safe. Whether you are autistic or just love someone who is, your hosts, Dr. Angela Loria, the linguistic autistic. And licensed psychological practitioner, Matt Lowry, welcome you to take this time to be fully immersed in the language, values, traditions, norms, and identity of Autistica. Autistica. All right, Matt, well, you might not know this, but there is a hot debate over whether Sherlock Holmes is autistic or not. I actually find this hysterical because he is a character, not a human. And any actor playing a role can make whatever choice they want. I mean, obviously, directors have a position in that, and it has to be informed by the text. And there's plenty of text here to make an autistic choice or not. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch says he played Sherlock as a sociopath. I find that fascinating. I know. I felt like it was very autistic, but he very clearly says he played him as a sociopath. And look, that's a valid acting choice. I'm not trying to critique what an actor does with a role. What I want to talk about on today's episode with you is the autistic culture that we can see in Sherlock Holmes if we choose to. And part of that is because uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he is possibly autistic, has many autistic traits, and he demonstrates autistic culture in the book. Whether you want to play it as an actor or not, you can. But And the, the shill is Dr. Watson, who represents holistic culture. Um, So he's our holistic friend in this. And he summarizes in A Study in Scarlet, which is one of ACD's most famous Sherlock Holmes um, mysteries. In A Study in Scarlet, he summarizes Sherlock Holmes' strengths and weaknesses. So I want to start right there with that quote. I'm going to send it over to you and give us a little of Dr. Watson's brilliance here. Dr. Watson's summary list of Sherlock Holmes's strengths and weaknesses. One, knowledge of literature. Two, knowledge of philosophy. Three, knowledge of anatomy. Uh, 
for knowledge of politics. Fable. Oh, wait, hold oh, on. Oh, sorry. NIL. What does NIL mean? Nil. Like none. Oh, oh, it's nil. very like, British. Oh, okay. We're having a British yes. moment here. There we go. Okay. I, I thought so. that was so. Yeah. Sorry. So, knowledge <laughs> of literature. Nil. Knowledge of philosophy. Nil. Knowledge of anatomy. Uh, astronomy. Nil. Knowledge of politics. Feeble. Knowledge of botany. Variable. Well up in belladonna. Opium and poisons generally. <laughs> <laughs> knows nothing of practical gardening. <laughs> Six, knowledge of geology, practical but limited. Tells at a glance different soils from each other. After walks has shown me splashes upon his trousers and told me by their color and cons consistence in what part of London he received them. That's awesome. <laughs> Number seven, knowledge of chemistry, profound. Knowledge of anatomy, accurate but unsystematic. Number nine, knowledge of sensational literature, immense. Oh, that's awesome. He appears to know every detail of every horror perpetuated in the century. Of course. Mm. That's wonderful. <laughs> uh, 10, plays the violin well. 11, is an expert single stick player, boxer, and swordsman. Number 12, has a good practical knowledge of British law. Arthur Conan Doyle, a study in scarlet. Yes. That's wonderful. So, yeah, he went deep on certain subjects and others, bupkis. Yeah. Exactly, because he's into researching poisons, but not practical gardening. Right, what's he going to have a garden for? Oh my for? God, wow, <laughs> that is an holistic quote right there. Right, but ask me about opium, I got you, boo. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, um, Sherlock Holmes is an outlier, and autistic people often talk about how it feels like we're from a different planet and we're just dropped here and are expected to learn how to act like the locals. He definitely has that alien vibe, you know, from the first book, from the time you meet Sherlock, from the way he dresses, that he is not playing by the rule book that was apparently handed out to everyone else. I did not get my copy yet. I'm still waiting. Um, but I want to talk about how being misunderstood Understood, actually informs a lot of autistic culture. Absolutely. So whether you play him as a sociopath or a narcissist, we'll talk about narcissism, an, an autistic, or as many actors have chosen is to just play him as a stone-cold asshole, um, all of this leaves the character of Sherlock exactly where many autistics find ourselves, which is not fitting in. And how I think this affects our culture is that when you chronically experience being misunderstood and having your, your experience filtered back like this list from Dr. Watson, where it's like, oh, you're not getting, it's not that I'm not into gardening, that, that's not the special interest, you're not getting me. Yeah. So one of the first things I think that happens is that we like to be alone. It's just not fun to be misunderstood. And so we we spend time with the people who get us best. Us, me, hello, me, myself, and I. And Sherlock loves to be alone. And by the way, we've talked a little bit here about how autism is uh, potentially um, her hereditary and 
Sherlock's uh, definitely brother and maybe even father are also autistic um, or potentially autistic. And so they started a club for people who like to be alone. This is from the adventure <laughs> of, this is uh, Sir Conan Doyle's, uh, the adventure of the Greek interpreter. So here you go, Matt, share a little of this with us. <clears throat> There are many men in London, you know, who, some form of shyness, some from uh, misanthropy, have no wish for the company of their fellows. Yet, they are not averse to comfortable chairs and the latest periodicals. It is for the convenience of these that the Diogenes Club was started, and it now contains the most unsociable and unclubbable men in town. No member is permitted to take the least notice of any other one. Save in the stranger's room, no talking is under any circumstances allowed. And three offenses, if brought to the notice of the committee, render the talker liable to expulsion. My brother was one of the founders, and I have myself found it a very soothing atmosphere. That is wonderful. I Join love that. Join me. Join me in the Diogenes Club. We could not talk to each other uh, and be near each other with comfortable chairs and the latest periodicals. What else could you ask for? Oh, autistic culture, my friends. Oh. A club where you have a, a stranger's room. Would you like to talk right now? Please move to the stranger's room. That is where talking is permitted. Otherwise, no talking. Exactly. That's fantastic. Such a great idea. Yeah. So this is, um, I think this is a beautiful part of autistic culture that we should celebrate. I am all for creating your own Diogenes Club. Um, I call that my home. But um, you can come over and not talk to me here anytime you want. I have comfortable chairs, pillows, periodicals, fireplaces, all the things you could want. Um, but that is not always an option. And, you know, we talk a lot uh, on this podcast about autism in adults. Many holistic people are surprised to find out that autistic children grow up to be adults and are still autistic. Fancy that. Shocking revelations. But as a kid, you don't have a choice of what club you go to. And you don't have a choice of uh, telling people, hey, there's there's a no talking rule here. And so we have to find other ways to be to be alone. Um, so that can be headphones, that can be uh, mobile devices or other sort of electronics. And a lot of holistics will want to take that away, like come be social with the family, which can actually be very painful and not necessarily, I think uh, parents, holistic parents will often do this for a positive reason. Like they're like, oh, we want our kid to be involved in the family. But I, I know you work with kids. And so talk about that ways of getting alone time and kind of how kids are punished for that. Well, that's the thing. We have a social battery and when it drains, we have to recharge. Uh, it, we, we get uh, energy like, you know, going to a Star Trek convention or a sci-fi convention. We can totally socialize as long as, you know, it's something that we're interested in, but it drains us. Uh, even the good stuff drains us. And when we don't feel like socializing, when we have to recharge, pushing us past our limit causes emotional distress. It, it causes physical pain. It causes us to break down. And I know that 
so due to differences in neurology and physiology, neurotypical people don't experience this stuff. Uh, it's one of the things that makes us who we are. And neurotypical people get recharged from socializing and small talk and going up to strangers in the store and asking how they're doing while you're trying to decide which... The other day, I was trying to decide which kind of turkey to get. And someone asked me if it was good turkey. And I'm like, I'm thinking here. Now I'm going to need to research. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's just, oh, my God, I just. Uh. But, yeah, that's that's a thing that uh, separates us. And there's a lot of holistic caregivers, uh, not necessarily uh, I mean, sometimes there's holistic parents. Uh, a lot of the time, there's at least one autistic parent. But I know of a lot of holistic caregivers who are very concerned that the autistic person spends a lot of time in the room and doesn't come out to socialize. And they say, will they grow up to be a hermit? Well, yeah, possibly, but not because of this. Will they Will they not have social skills? It's like, well, we have social skills just different from yours. But it's inevitably this bone of contention that they're not acting neurotypically and seeking out neurotypical social stimulation when they need to recharge. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, an incredibly unfortunate thing that I wish was better understood. Yeah, I had a um, experience with my nephew, who I have no idea whether he is autistic or not, but he was had gone out for a couple hours of skateboarding and he came home and his mom said, I'm going to go out, but you stay with your aunt, but don't go in your room, whatever you do. And as soon as she left, I was like, hey, I just want you to know I'm autistic. And sometimes after I've been out for a couple hours doing something that I'm really interested in, I need to recharge. And so if you need to just like go in your room and stare at your phone or whatever, like come down when you're ready. And it was very interesting to see how like creating that permission, he ended up, he went up to his room and then like two minutes later came down and we ended up playing a game. Yeah. But saying you must socialize can actually be really uh, like counter counterproductive, I think. For me, when I was a little bit older than my nephew, I became a cutter. Yeah. And I was being told all the time, you have to socialize, you have to socialize. And then as soon as I was alone, the first thing I would do was cut my ankles with a razor blade. I would like break apart my razors for shaving my legs and I would cut my ankles. And like that was not a healthy way to take that out if I had more recharging time or more um, maybe permission for some of my stimming activities I wouldn't have felt like I needed to. I obviously didn't need to cut, but it certainly felt like a need when I was an adolescent. Well, when you're so emotionally overloaded, you need some sort of outlet. And kids do not have the best resources available because, you know, being kids. So self-harm is often one of those outlets until they find something that's healthier. Yeah. And it, we have so many sensory experiences coming at us, plus this constant feeling of not fitting in and of being surprised 
that other people are misinterpreting us, that stimming is something we will often do. So like that can be flapping your hands or twirling your hair or tapping a pencil or bouncing your knee. For me, my stim is biting my nails. And what that led to was having my hand slapped hundreds of times while near my face by parents, siblings, friends, teachers, boyfriends, bosses, like you name it. I have had my stop biting your nails, my hand slapped out of my face by well-meaning people. And I'm thinking, well, like the alternatives here don't feel a lot better for me than biting my nails. And how is this exactly bothering you? Like, I'm not putting my hands in your mouth. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, My son bites his nails. And when he was younger, when he ran out of nails to bite, he would bite his toes. Yeah, same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and that's the thing, because uh, I uh, and I've introduced him to Lego and drawing and all that kind of stuff. But I've got a a vast collection of toys and I've got element dice that are made of pure elements. This one is silver. I've got uh, my various uh, toys like the Razor Crest from the Mandalorian. I've got my enormous Stimrold. This is a 400 carat uh, emerald that was Ah. lab grown. And I got it off of Etsy for 70 bucks. And yeah, lab grown gems are the best because, you know, no one has to pay to dig them out of the ground. You just get them out of the lab and you can make as many as you want. I love it. Gems are like one of my big stems and they always have. And like a lot of people will ask me, like, do you think crystals are magical? There's like a whole bunch of crystals behind me. I'm like, they're magical (laughs) for me. Yes. Like, and I have all different, like, textures and I go to different ones for different like if I need grounding so like they, they do have magical properties but they all have to do with what it feels like for me to touch and hold them and rub them and yeah have them in my hands exactly. so that's how yeah. I think they work <laughs> exactly yeah yeah they're just fun I, I I love crystals I've got a a fantastic grown gem collection because you could you could buy a bag of rubies for 20 bucks I mean, why would you not buy a bag of rubies for right? 20 bucks? And did I you mean, ever seriously. do the um, w- the machines where you can roll them and smooth them out yourself? The rock tumblers. Rock- yes, oh, God, rock yes. tumblers. That's the oh, word. I had, a, I had a conversation about rock tumblers earlier this week. Yeah. Yeah, so it's good. fantastic. So good. We love sharing stories of autistic culture. And if you are seeing yourself in any of these stories and you're wondering if maybe you're one of us or maybe you're already diagnosed or self-diagnosed and you want to know if Matt can help you live your life better and be more authentically autistic, check out his website at mattlowerylpp.com. That's Matt, M-A-T-T, Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y. And then that L-P-P, it stands for Licensed Psychological Practitioner. So head on over to mattlowrylpp.com and learn more about working with my buddy, Matt. So lots of lots of healthy stimming, but there is also some unhealthy stimming. And in Sherlock Holmes' autistic culture, 
We have some very famous stimming, which is Sherlock and his famous pipe. So in the Redheaded League, which is uh, 56 short stories written by Conan Doyle, um, published in the Strand Magazine in 1891, long before anyone was diagnosing anyone with uh, autism, he talked about Sherlock and when he had a big problem, Sherlock described it as a three-pipe problem. And he said, it's quite a three-pipe problem, and I beg that you won't speak to me for 50 minutes. The man knows his boundaries. Right? Exactly. So um, uh, there's another there's another quote about how Sherlock uses his, used his pipe to stim and keep people away from him. Uh, he... <laughs> this one's from the Valley of Fear. Sherlock had pushed away his untasted breakfast and lit the unsavory pipe, which was the companion of his deepest meditations. I like that quote. The companion of his deepest meditations. Well, that's one of my questions. Do you think uh, stimming helps with thinking, clarity, calming down your mind? The things we think of as meditation. Yes, can stimming be a path to meditation or even a form of meditation? So, okay, so the, the neat thing about uh, autistic meditation and stimming and entering a flow state is that this can directly help. So, so there's this guy named Csikszentmihalyi, uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, uh, who pioneered the concept of flow in 1975. And Without even knowing it, he described an autotelic personality uh, 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 with high intrinsic motivation, uh, let's see here, low egocentricity, basically de describe the autistic personality and how we enter a flow state. And being able to stim, being able to get into whatever we are and tune out the outside world, whether it's stimming with uh, physical stuff or movement or food or uh, music or reading, whatever we are into that allows us to dive deep into ourself changes our brain from producing alpha waves to theta waves mm. and produces a deep sense of meditation and uh, achieving a state of zen. And this is easier for autistic people to do than neurotypical people because neurotypical people, from what I'm told, uh, have to work very hard to achieve this state of Zen. But when we are stimming in our own world or listening to our music or deep into a Sherlock Holmes book, we slip into it. Right. And this is a thing because when neurotypical people say, Matt, Matt, Matt. Matt, what, 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 what? Uh, Hello? Yeah, I, I was, <laughs> I was doing to something. You. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and we are so deep into this meditative state, it's very jarring to pull us out of it. And mm. this is one big thing about, you know, uh, like going back to cutting, that a lot of autistic people do self-harm before they find out good ways to get into this flow state and get into this state of meditation and finding ways to effectively stim, finding out which stims work for them. Uh, are they more of a, uh, a physical uh, thing? Do, are they more of a proprioceptive stimmer? Uh, we, we do proprioceptive vestibular stimming through movement. Uh, 
people who are watching the video will notice that I rock and move and sway and I'm all over the place. Uh, one of the most common thing is cricket feet because uh, we will rub our feet together, especially if we're trying to go to sleep at night. Yeah, and yeah, it gets yeah. us into this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and when you mention cricket feet to autistic people, they, they initially give you this, how did you know sort of thing? But this is a common thing for us. We need this movement in order to be healthy, whether it's just movement with our hands and stimming or moving back and forth or walking. Uh, we, we need to be able to do something to get deep into ourselves and have mm. this meditative state. Yeah. And uh, and if you bother us at, while we're doing that and tell us not to or slap my face, I know it's my oh hand, but it's very near my face. Yeah. It's not like exactly going to bring out the best in me. No, no, no. Uh, you're derailing the train of monotropism. Right. So uh, the one thing that nobody disputes about Sherlock Holmes is that he's got a one track mind when he's on a problem. And we talk a lot about monotropism. But just in case someone isn't familiar with us, Matt, give us the 411. What is monotropism? It is a, a tendency for us to get super, super hyper laser focused on things and to dive entirely into that detail and tune out the entire world around us. Right. So when the DSM diagnostic criteria for autism says things like people with autism demonstrate deficits in social communication and social interaction, and they demonstrate restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, and activities, I want to take this into what it actually means from an autistic culture lens. Uh, I am going to talk about Sherlock Holmes, but I want to talk about people who are not part of our culture just to help you understand what monotropism feels like. So I like to tell people, if you imagine that you are watching the series finale of your favorite TV show ever, you've been waiting to watch it. You saved it up for a quiet time. You cleared your day. It's an amazing episode. Every character storyline is coming together exactly how you hoped. And then somebody says, will you make Make me a grilled cheese sandwich or uh, will you come look at a veruca on my foot? Uh, Can you see how you might have some deficits in your social communication and interaction there? You might not be like, perdone me. Could you wait five minutes, por favor? You might snap. And then imagine someone says, why are you so focused on this TV show? Why don't you want to do anything else? Come outside and play ball. Yeah. Would that make you want to stop watching the TV show? Would you be like, oh, well, it's the series finale of my favorite show. Let me just pause it and go look at your wart. Yeah, yeah. L let me stop everything that I'm doing because you have a different value structure and different levels of importance than I do. Let me adapt to your needs. Right. And so if you are not autistic, you can imagine this. Like mama's watching her TV show, leave me alone. But if you are monotropic... If you are autistic and you have a monotropic lens all the time, this is 
why I I mean, I think uh, this is why it gets coded in the DSM as we have social problems or uh, too narrow of a focus. But really, I think this comes from being monotropically driven instead of socially driven or people pleasing driven or whatever it is. Holistics are driven by every, a little bit of everything. By- yeah, yeah, we are driven by data hunger. We have to learn. We have to research. Uh, the the fact that we are talking about all the stuff that we research on this very podcast <laughs> is the most autistic thing in itself because we love diving in and researching and learning about the things that we love. This is who we are. We, we are scientists. We are researchers. We are archivists. We are librarians. We need all of this stuff. Yeah, and I want to take a side journey here for a second and talk about identity first language because I call myself autistic or I say uh, I'm an autistic person, not a person with autism, like a DSM diagnosis, even though I have a diagnosis, but because my autism isn't, I can't separate it from me. My cold, like I'm at the end of a cold, I am not my cold. My cold will be gone. My cold is here, then I do not have a cold. I have a sore throat, then I do not have a sore throat. It is not my identity. It's a temporary condition, but my autism, especially in the context of being monotropist, that is not a condition I am trying to get rid of or I think I would be very successful in trying to get rid of. Right. And, and to outsiders, holistics don't understand why we would be proud to be autistic. Because again, they see it as a disorder. We, when we accept ourselves, when we learn about these great things about being autistic, when we learn to appreciate these things about ourselves, we can be proud to be autistic. We can be proud to be the people of Autistica because it, it's not something that needs to change, nor should it, because it helps us be better versions of ourselves. Yeah. And so when somebody says you don't look autistic or it's just a label or have you tried not eating wheat and dairy ah. um, or whatever we're supposed to try this week to stop being who we are, um, it I think it often comes from a helpful, like a, not a helpful place. It's not helpful at all, but a well-meaning place. I would say most people's response to me is you don't look autistic, which is one of the funniest things a human can say. So I dread it. I dread telling people I'm autistic. I dread people not knowing because then they're going to think I'm an asshole when there might be some better explanations. But when I do tell them, I get a a weird response that is like uh, very hard to manage for me. You don't look anything like Rain Man. I'm like, are you? My answer is always the same. And I always do this. This is probably not healthy, but this is what I do. I'm like, oh, my God, I had no idea you had a degree in neuropsychology. Yeah, seriously. When did oh, when did you get that? Where did you study? I'm so fascinated. Tell me more. And and that's the that's the thing about this, because uh, for literally anything else that they would say, you don't look Canadian. That sounds insane. You don't look like you love Pepsi. That's insane. I I don't understand why autism is the thing that even if you go into like disorders and diseases, you don't look like you have appendicitis. 
I, I, why? Why do these people, why is autism the one thing that people feel like they are qualified, uh, un, uh, 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 unmistakably qualified right. to judge about? I mean, why? What is They're it? They're on it. They're like, yeah. oh, no, no, oh. no, no, no. No, you? <laughs> no, no, sirree. I'm like, really? Because I'm like very fucking autistic. So what's the data points? Give me some data points here. Where are you coming up with this? Yeah, exactly. I don't understand what they think it looks like. So the one thing I can say for sure is Sherlock was very monotropic and ah. he got a little bit cranky when people would accuse him of having narrow interests and not being friendly or cheerful in a particular way. And um, <laughs> that's one of the reasons I love watching Sherlock is because it it is a very... Um, paternalistic and really insulting to our way of life. Most of us take our monotropic tropic interests um, very seriously. In fact, for many of us, it's the only careers we can keep. I know I got fired from every job that was not in my monotropic interest. I am the world's worst waitress, not the job for me. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure Sherlock would have gotten fired from any job other than being a detective. Like that, if you can find work in your monotropic interest, and we've obviously talked about many examples on this podcast, and you can actually get paid to do that, which many autistic people struggle with. But that is the, that's the holy grail there. Because you are probably not going to keep a job that is not in your special interest. Not at all. Or at least not without burning out right quick. Yeah, yeah, it takes so much energy. So one of the things that I have always struggled with is the phrase work-life balance. <laughs> it feels like to all listics, this must be very important. There's probably 9,000 podcasts you can find, but there's some sort of goal to have a balance between work activities and non-work activities. And I can see how you can balance work and non-work because they are two separate things. Work things, things you're getting paid for, non-work things, things you're not getting paid for. Work life, I really struggle with because work is a subset of life. It is one of the features of life. And you can't balance a subset with the thing itself. That is not how scales work. You can't balance a thing that's inside a thing with the thing it's inside of. But I am <laughs> digressing. Whatever this work to non-work ratio is... I have had many mentors, teachers, and bosses drill into my head that I am doing life somehow wrong because I am not balancing appropriately work and non-work, which I would say Sherlock Holmes did not do a great job of balancing work <laughs> and non-work. And this is from The Sign of Four, uh, another Sherlock Holmes. I'm going to send you over this quote to read. <clears throat> this is a Sherlock Holmes quote. Yeah. My mind, he said, rebels at stagnation. Give me problems. Give me work. Give me the most obtruse cryptogram or the most intricate analysis, and I'm in my own proper atmosphere. 
I can disperse with him with artificial stimulants, but I abhor the dull routine of existence. I crave for mental exaltation. That is why I've chosen my own particular profession, or rather created it, for I am the only one in the world. I Does, love that so oh much. Oh my God, it like literally makes me want to cry. Because so many autistics struggle with work. Struggle yes. with being accepted in the workplace, struggle with having a healthy workplace. Listen to our episode on industrial light and magic for like a healthy um, autistic workplace. But there are very few autistic workplaces. And even if you had a, an aut autism friendly workplace, it doesn't mean it's going to work for you if it's not in your special interest in your in who you are in your essence it's like special interest to me is minimizing here that that's Sherlock's identity that's what he does is solve problems cryptograms yes. whatever it is <laughs> and it, so it, then he yeah. talks in this quote too about um I can I can deal with the misery of life when I'm not working problems with artificial stimulants and if you followed Sherlock Holmes, he's got a little issue with some addictions, which will happen if you are having to spend a lot of time outside of who you are. Yeah. Yeah. The only way to live authentically is to dive right into it. And uh, that's why I'm incredibly fortunate to have made a living out of not only researching autism, but talking to people about autism and encouraging people to be themselves because I don't feel like I'm working when I'm doing it, when I'm doing the paperwork, yes. But yeah. when I'm talking with people, boy, that's a fun time. Right. And, and like yeah. maybe that gives you enough energy to do the paper. Like I'm not saying every single thing that you do as an autistic person is going to be perfectly in your special interest, but you have to have enough of it that you have the energy to, I don't know, fill out insurance paperwork or whatever the miseries are. Exactly. For me, it's like managing employees that are working with me. But like, I feel so lucky that I get to make a living from my passion, which has always been reading and writing and the pursuit of knowledge and nonfiction books. I only do nonfiction. And if somebody just took that away from me and said, build a beautiful life, but you can't do anything with books. I, I, I would take me a minute to figure that out. Yeah. Here's what Sherlock said, if they took that from him. I cannot live without brain work. What else is there to live for? Stand at the window here. Was there ever such a dreary, dismal, unprofitable world? See how the yellow fog swirls down the street and drifts across the dun-colored houses? What could be more hopelessly prosaic and material? Mm. Right. We live in our heads. We've got to have mental stimulation. Yeah. Yep. And for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock, the creator of Sherlock and the author of the Sherlock books, this was in many ways him. Hit writing Sherlock was a huge part for him of the of his brain work of what he wanted to do and he was able to do through these prolific books. In our culture, in autistic culture, we thrive when we are able to work and we live to work, not the other way around. 
So balance, I think, when when you hear as an autistic person, work-life balance, to me, I switch that out for balancing my autistic nature, my my autistic needs, my monotropism with interacting with the broader holistic society, insurance, paperwork, employee contracts, things that I need to be able to, you know, do in order to survive. I don't know, grocery shopping, not that I ever do that because that is like the laundry, grocery, any of those things, super not for me. But I don't need a work-life balance. I need a balance between being fully expressed as autistic and doing the things I need to do to survive in a majority holistic culture and not burn out. So that's yeah. the balance for me is my true nature with the requirements of being in a majority holistic world. Yeah, absolutely. When autistic people find a special interest, they go deep and have a lot of knowledge, even if they don't have that formal education background to go with it. If you want to capture your spin in a book, check out Angela's work at differencepress.com. Difference press.com and find out more about becoming an author and establishing your credibility with a book. All right. The last thing I want to talk about today is how generous autistic culture is. So generosity, sometimes over generosity is at the core of who we are. And when it's pathologized, sometimes we're, I've seen in descriptions, we're called like childish or naive and like, where does that come from? I mean, that's like pure ableism in my world, but what, how do yeah, you think well, about those terms? I, I think that the biggest part of it is that, again, holistics believe that we grow out of being autistic, which is insane. And because of that, they see autistic traits as being childlike and related to children. I know that I myself have gotten in, uh, uh, I have had to work through a lot of stuff because I know that when I like a person, I will bend over backwards for them. I will do stuff for them. I will give them things. Autistic people are essentially like crows in that we, if we like someone, we will bring you a shiny rock. And we, we if we don't like you, a, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> reap the wrath. Yes. But we happen to hoard shiny rocks and we will give you all bits of pieces of us. And we think that that's how we will relate to people. And again, other autistic people will see these shiny rocks and say, oh my, you gave me a shiny rock. Let me give you a shiny rock. And it's this extensive shiny rock exchange. And then it's good for us. Neurotypical people will take the rock, toss it aside and say, how childish and worthless. And it's that's a big problem with how we relate to people. And I think because our system of thinking is very um, like based in logic as opposed to some sort of like social survival echo location, don't be thrown out of the village, that we're very hopeful that if we just say it louder or more frequently, autistics will get these incredible shiny rocks we're giving them because exactly. like they seem so logical and wonderful to us. And then, you know, Sherlock Holmes is called a misanthrope or a sociopath, but what an incredible shiny rock, what an incredible gift that he used his life force to make his community safer. Yes. To me, that is the opposite of sociopathy. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's an interesting thing about that. And actually, hold on. Let me uh, put this in here because I will uh, do that. Uh, so, yeah. So there was a study published last year about uh, uh, where neurotypical people, holistics and uh, autistic people were given a task and that we were to play a card game and win fake money through that card game. Right. Uh and you could win more fake money if you cheat. And inevitably, the holistics all cheated to win fake money, and the autistics all refused to cheat. Uh, because, again, the neurotypical saw this as the point of the game is to acquire as much money as possible. Uh, but the, the autistics are like, oh, the point here is to play a card game. So instead of saying, uh, the researchers, when they were uh, going over their findings, instead of saying that holistics have a tendency to cheat and it's part of the neurotypical culture to in to encourage profit at all costs, the results of the study say that autistics have a rigid moral inflexibility that prevents us from succeeding. Fuck all the way off. See, this is what I mean about we're very hopeful. If you want to call that childish or naive, I am yeah. very hopeful that you will get on side with our moral compass. It is not rigid. It is right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have a, uh, a big thing about justice sensitivity. We are very bothered by what is fair and unfair. We work hard to make things more fair. And again, to a cynical neurotypical, they say, well, the only thing that you need to do in life is suffer and die. Neurotypicals are big on that. And have make you money, just tried I suffering? guess. Exactly. Right. Exactly. It's about the, collecting as much green as you can and then die from it. This is the quote from the study. And you could just hear like the seething ableism here. Here we show that ASD, we'll just call them autistic because I don't even like reading that. But yeah. here we show that autistic individuals are more inflexible when following a moral rule. Uh, yes, that's why it's called a moral rule, motherfuckers, even though an immoral action can benefit themselves and suffer an undue concern about their ill-gotten gains and the moral cost. Because we have souls? I, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. correct. Yeah, yeah, they complain that we... we opine over immoral actions that uh, if we accidentally take a, an extra penny and if we have somehow you know negatively influenced people it bothers us uh yeah they they find mm -hmm. that odd and right I, I, but you could that, have made more money and had more friends Exactly. And that's that's why the, the, the neurotypical culture, the capitalist, colonialist culture that facilitates neurotypical things it is so bizarre to us because we don't screw over people for money. Right. And like, I know one of the things I have been called is I don't think I've been called a sociopath, but maybe people talk about me behind my back, but I've definitely been called narcissistic. And the thing about narcissism is that narcissists, and I know Sherlock has been called a narcissist, narcissists, they are doing something to get what they want. They're acting in a certain way that they can turn on or off. But Sherlock yeah. Holmes can't not be Sherlock. I can't not be Angela. We're not acting in this role. And... What's more, if you tell us something we did that hurt you, we will be very remorseful and sad and we will attempt to 
you know, make up for whatever harm we did. And that being seen as like rigid or I've been called ruthless, that is, you know, a way of being that is very adjustable if you communicate. Whereas narcissists are conscious of what they're doing. They are trying to harm someone for their own benefit. So autistics are just, we're hyper-focused. We're like trying to do our thing. We're managing our intense world. We're not trying to be rude. We just think it's not rude to focus on the thing that's important to us and let you focus on the thing that's important to you. Yeah. We're trying to be helpful in a way that makes sense to us. Yeah. So um, when when somebody misunderstands this as childish or narcissistic or naive, this is, to me, one of the most generous aspects. And when somebody gets that, when somebody says like, oh, I totally get it. You weren't being selfish there. You were being generous. That is where we can um, I haven't I haven't expressly talked about double empathy, but that's where yeah. we can bridge the double empathy gap, because if you're with a whole bunch of allistics and you are allistic, you will understand their way of being. It will make sense and you'll have a lot of empathy if you are. Talk if you are holistic and you're talking to an autistic and you're thinking, oh, they're selfish, they're narcissistic, they're childish, they're naive, they're wasting my time with these shiny rocks. I never said I wanted a shiny rock. Whatever that is, that is your empathy problem just as much as ours. That is, it's a two-sided coin. And when we bridge that, when we understand holistic culture better, which we are forced to do every damn day. In order to survive. In order to survive. And when autistic, and when holistics though, do a little bit of work, and maybe for you, it's listening to this podcast, um, you can have some amazing miracles. So I mentioned Dr. Watson elementary dear Watson, uh, is our holistic stand-in here. And he has a moment. It's one of my favorite moments in Sherlock Holmes where he bridges the autistic divide with Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes does something. And instead of thinking of Sherlock Holmes as an asshole, he actually sees the true generosity of autistic culture. Here is the quote. It's from the casebook of Sherlock Holmes. It was worth a wound. It was worth many wounds to know the depth of loyalty and love which lay behind that cold mask. The clear, hard eyes were dimmed for a moment and the firm lips were shaking. For the one and only time I caught a glimpse of a great heart as well as a great brain. All of my years of humble but single-minded service culminated in that moment of revelation. Are you feeling it with me? Yeah. He sees him. And that is what we are asking for is in his autistic culture. Like, see us, see the beauty. See, he was a great heart as well as a great brain. Yeah. And that's the thing, because we, due to uh, our mirror neurons being hyperconnected, we have hyper empathy. We have great uncontrollable empathy and uh, we're, we're again due to the monotropic focus we're looking for a direction to put that empathy and we we are great companions for those who understand us 
We are great friends. We are great in relationships for those who understand us. But again, if you come at from a, uh, an holistic viewpoint, we're going to seem like cold and feeling assholes because we don't do the neurotypical thing. We, that's just not who we are. Watson says to know the depth of loyalty and love. Can you talk a little about loyalty and autism? So, okay, so this is a big thing that separates us from the narcissists because, uh, again, narcissists do a thing called love bombing where they look for, they, they do this recon in order to figure out your weaknesses and uh, try to lure you in with all these superficial acts of uh, devotion and then use it against you to control you. We, on the other hand, when we find someone that we enjoy time, uh, enjoy spending time with, that person becomes a special interest for us. We learn everything we can about them. We want to do everything we can for them. We we do our research because, again, we love research and that they become a topic of research. We want to know how best to understand them because that is the autistic way. We want to understand our friends. We want to understand our partners. We want to understand those that we care about. And to us, that is the greatest sign of devotion because that that is what we value. We value understanding. Yeah, well, I have barely touched the surface of Sherlock Holmes or Sir Arthur Conan Doyle here, but I hope this gives you a little taste of the beauty of autistic culture represented through Sherlock Holmes. And if you are a Sherlock fan, I encourage you to watch an episode or read a book and see if you can look through the autistic culture lens and see if it changes those stories a little bit for you. Uh, I know for me, I have always loved Sherlock Holmes, but I didn't necessarily know why. And looking at how autistic culture is represented was really fun for me to say like, oh, that's why I love it. It feels a little bit like home when I'm when I'm having a cup of tea with Sherlock. So that's awesome. Yes. And so with that little celebration of Sherlock, I'm going to ask you to splash us with some autistic culture from your life, Matt. Uh, Hit us with some autistic joy that you experienced this week. What did you love about being autistic? So my son and I, uh, we have a routine of every Wednesday we go to the Lego store. He loves Legos. He loves building. We go through the Lego store and find something fantastic. We come home and we build it and that that this is our life. So they just released the tallest Lego set ever made. It is a five foot tall Eiffel Tower with 10,001 pieces. And they had this Eiffel Tower on display and we're walking into the mall. Uh, we walk into the Lego store and it hits him and he runs up to it. His eyes are as wide as saucers and he screeches at the top of his lungs and screams, that's a big Lego Eiffel Tower. Yes. Christmas dragon brings big Lego Eiffel Tower. And he decided at that moment that he needed the Christmas dragon to bring us the big Lego Eiffel Tower. I don't know if we've gone into the dragonology of it all, but my, my son uh, has decided that dragons bring all of our gifts and he needs the Lego, he needs the Christmas dragon to bring us the Lego Eiffel Tower. And uh, as of this moment, I think that we we can confirm that the Christmas dragon will be bringing the Lego Eiffel Tower and may be working on it as we speak. Because I was going to say, it, does it get built before? 
Is it like a bike you have to assemble like it, before Christmas Day? Oh, absolutely. Well, well that's the thing. Uh, Santa has to come on Christmas Eve, but Christmas Dragon can come whenever. And my son's birthday is actually Monday. So uh, the, hopefully Christmas Dragon will have this big 10,000-piece Lego Eiffel Tower built before he sees it this weekend. So, All right. Well, that sounds like a project. But one of the things I, I heard this story a little bit before, and one of the things I want to share is in a, let's say, public shopping mall on a weekend, you're with your child, your child screams with autistic joy. Many parents would tell their kid to be quiet, maybe smack yeah. their kid, tell them to, I don't know, take a time out, stand in the dunce corner. Um, so can we talk a little bit about our expressions of autistic joy? Some of us even on this call get quite loud when we're excited. Yes. <laughs> Some of us. <laughs> yes. So this is a thing. Uh, neurotypical culture knows about meltdowns and shutdowns when autistic people are sad. But they don't know about this hyper joy, this exuberance, this overwhelming passion that we have. Because, again, they like to pathologize the entirety of autism. They don't want to see that there is this exceptional joy, this euphoria that we experience when we find something that we truly love. And because of that, they don't understand why a child might draw all of the attention of everyone in the Lego store because they are so enthralled with this thing because due to wiring, neurotypicals cannot experience this joy. Just like they have never experienced an autistic meltdown, they cannot experience autistic euphoria. But the autistic euphoria is one of the great gifts that we have and it, it makes our lives colorful and seasoned and it's wonderful and it's one thing that I will never ever 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 deny my child because his birthright is autistic joy is the autistic euphoria and I hope that he continues to find things throughout his life that give his life this great joy and uh, we need to include it. Well, there there it is. We want to hear your autistic joy in the comments. What was the time when you screamed in public? Give us a good reason. Uh, we are all for autistic euphoria, and we're so glad you joined us. Please share this podcast with someone who you think could benefit from it. Thanks for listening to the Autistic Culture Podcast. If you like this show, you can help other people find it by taking a few minutes to rate and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can find out more about writing your book with me at differencepress.com. That's difference, D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-C-E, press, P-R-E-S-S.com. Or getting a psychological evaluation or consult with me at www.mattlowrylpp.com. That's M-A-T-T, Matt Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y, L-P-P, as in Licensed Psychological Practitioner.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And remember, no one ever changed the world by being like everyone else. Thank you.